When each of us were married, we vowed before God and each other to take our spouses to have and to hold this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish from this day forward until death do us part. These are more than just words to get through the marriage ceremony. These are conditions in life that prop up as the years roll by. Conditions of troubles and extreme difficulties of all kinds that we face in our marriages as the years roll around. This is a vow made to each other before God, and it's not easy to live out. Psychologists and family counselors have written libraries full of books on how to live with your wife, how to restore your broken marriages. But none of them address the root cause, which is sin, nor the real solution, which is grace. So we will not refer to any of the man-made self-help books here today, but instead we'll speak only and refer only to the book of God, the Bible. God is the one who created man and woman in the first place. God is the one who instituted marriage. God is the one who knows husbands and wives and what they need, not only for a successful life, but for a successful marriage. And God is also the one who gave us the prime example of how we are to live with one another in holy matrimony. So today I would like to talk with you about sin, mercy, and grace. And for those of you who have been married for a while, you know, is there anything more necessary in marriage than mercy and grace when living with your spouse? Both of you and all of us in our natural condition have been weakened by the ravages of the original sin in the Garden of Eden. Our human nature was corrupted and weakened. Remember this the next time your spouse gets a little cranky with you. Sin affects all of us. And there's none of us that are accepted. Listen to what the Paul, Apostle Paul had to say even about himself. As recorded in that seventh chapter of Romans Starting in the first, the 14th verse, Paul said, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not know and understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want to, but I do the very thing I hate. 
Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but it's sin dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close behind. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Friends, if the Apostle Paul had a weakness caused by indwelling sin, what about us? How do we deal with this dilemma of sin within our own marriages, within our own home? How do we deal with it when we're dealing with our spouse that we love? Well, the doctrines of grace apply to each and every one of us in our marriages. But also, the doctrines of grace apply to us in everything we do in all of our relationships, in the home, as well as in the church. It will do us good, I think, to understand how God, in his mercy, dwelt with, dealt with us when we were haters of God, living in sin, and in our state of total rebellion. We have to remember that. This term, the doctrines of grace, has an acronym, acronym as a reminder, and the acronym spells out the word TULIP. Many of you probably know TULIP. They know this acronym. Many of you know and probably have studied the doctrines of grace, but I don't want to assume that everybody knows. So with that in mind, I'll take a few minutes and at least to offer a brief explanation of what they are. These doctrines of grace are believed, studied, and taught in Reformed churches everywhere, including all the churches in the Association of Reformed Baptist Churches in America, the Texas Area Reformed Baptist Churches, which, of which our church is a member, the Southern California Association of Baptist Churches, Reformed Baptist Churches, and other Reformed Baptist Churches all over the world. Succinctly, Reformed theology holds to the authority of Scripture, the sovereignty of God, salvation by grace through Jesus Christ, that the Bible is inspired and the authoritative Word of God sufficient in all matters of faith and practice. There's much more to Reformed theology that we could talk about for a long time, but for our purpose here today, it's sufficient to say 
that we in the Reformed faith have a high view of Scripture. So if you don't mind, I'm, I'm going to take my time before getting into the crux of my sermon to give you a little bit of history about the doctrines of faith, doctrines of grace. These doctrines were not called the doctrines of grace until the 17th century. After a huge international meeting that was held to discuss a divisive heresy that had crept into the church and was causing major problems. For a little background, we need to go back to the Reformation of the 16th century, which began on October 31st, 1517, when a Roman Catholic priest named Martin Luther nailed a piece of paper to the door at the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. That paper contained a list of 95 complaints against the heretical practices of the Reformed Catholic Church. That document is known as Luther's 95 Thesis, and it caused much fervor that sparked what we know as the Protestant Reformation. Luther's intent, when he documented, documented all of these problems within that Roman Catholic Church, was not to break away from the church, but to lay truth before the eyes of, of the church leaders and hope that they would repent from teaching and practicing religious heresy. Luther's hope at the time was that the church would come to its senses and start believing and practicing what the scriptures really taught. But that was not to be. History tells us how the leaders of the church reacted to this. That's a great story in itself. I encourage you to read a little bit about that history. It's, it's a great story. We don't have time today. But their response was akin to the Pharisees when Jesus was telling them about their corruption. They didn't like it. And they wanted to kill Jesus. And they did. Well, the leaders of the Roman Catholic Church reacted the same way. They didn't like it. And they rebelled. They were rejected entirely and violently. But they were quickly snapped up by other protesters. And by the grace of God, Witten, we had the uh, Gutenberg, or Guten, who, who, who invented the printing press? The printing press was invented right then, and they were being printed and passed out. And they were distributed far and wide. That was the beginning of what we know today as the Protestant Reformation and a move toward getting back to the Bible and teaching the sovereignty of God. It was to hopefully bring an end to the heresy of man's teaching that man can save himself. It was a rejection of man-centered teaching. That salvation from sin was by grace, by what God has done through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the righteous live by faith, not works. The protesters against 
the Roman Catholic Church were called Protestants, protesters, Protestants. And during the years that followed, 1517, much biblical theology was written by many reformers, including Luther and Zwingli, Kelvin, Biza, and many others. Part of that work was Calvin's famous Institutes of the Christian Religion, which is still widely studied by theological students today. So let's fast forward now from that 16th century into the 17th century. And in 1610, there had been a a growing revolt against the sovereignty of God by the teaching, following the teaching of Jacobus Arminius, who was now dead at that time. The followers of Arminius wrote a protest against the Reformation theology, and that protest was called the Remonstrance. The protesters, called Arminians, and you've heard that name, had five points of contention. This remonstrance triggered a huge response from theologians throughout the Netherlands and from all across Europe. During that time in history, the Reformed theologians held scripture to the highest of standards Because of the importance of correct biblical doctrine, Arminianism was considered by many to be political treason. It was a crime. This was a really big deal. These Reformed theologians called for a meeting in the Netherlands, in the city of Dordrecht. They needed to meet with these Arminians to discuss their objections. The meeting was called the Synod of Dort. Synod, S-Y-N-O-D. Synod simply means an assembly, a meeting. It was a meeting in the city of Dort. Some of you may know about it, studied it, and some may not. But it was a national synod of the Reformed Churches of the Netherlands, and it was international in scope, because not only Dutch delegates were there, but 26 delegates from several countries throughout Europe. The Synod convened on November 13, 1618. 39 pastors and 18 ruling elders from the Belgic churches, five professors from the University of Holland, 19 delegates from the Reformed churches in Germany and Switzerland, and five professors and bishops from Great Britain. The Synod constituted of 86 voting members in all. This was big. It lasted for six months. There were 154 formal sessions and many side conferences that they met in to discuss these serious matters. I'm giving you the bigger picture of this assembly so that you'll know that this was not just a handful of men like sometimes we do, go out and have lunch and have a little theological discussion as we talk about the scriptures. This was a six-month endeavor into reaching into the Scriptures, And here's what it was all about. The Synod was called to settle the divisive controversy that was started by the followers of Jacobus Arminius. After Arminius' death, his followers raised objections against the oldest 
of the doctrinal confessions of the Christian Reformed Church, known as the Belgic Confession. They also objected to the teachings of God's grace, God's grace as taught by the scriptures and enumerated by John Calvin and Theodore Beza and their followers. Well, here's what the Armenians were teaching, that man had enough moral ability in him to believe apart from the necessity of the work of God and his grace. They taught that God, God chose his people on the basis of foreseen faith. In other words, God in eternity looked down the tunnel of time to see who was going to choose him. And on the basis of them choosing him, he chose them. That was their version of election. They also taught a universal atonement. That is that Christ's sacrifice on the cross makes redemption possible for everybody, but certain for none. According to their teaching, whatever Christ accomplished on the cross, he accomplished for everybody. For those who are finally saved, as well as for those who are finally lost. They taught that God's grace was resistible, meaning that if a sinner did not want to respond to the calling of God's grace, he could resist it, turn around, and walk away and refuse. And they also taught that it was possible for a sinner who was saved to finally lose his salvation. And of course, none of that is what the scriptures teach. A quick overview of what happened at the Synod. Simon Episcopius was the spokesman of the protesters, the 14 remonstrants, as they were called. Simon Episcopius was called before the Synod with his group of remonstrants. And Episcopius asked if he could speak first. He was hoping that he could put his objections in front of the entire assembly in order to create a doubt against the teaching of the reformers. It appeared that he was trying to sway their thinking. The synod, however, told him and those who were with him that they were bound first to justify their objections by giving scriptural proof in order to support their position. Imagine that. Just show us the scriptures and prove it. Well, Episcopius and the Arminians would not submit to a scriptural debate because they didn't have one. It destroyed their whole plan of argument. And they were compelled to withdraw. What they had was invented ideas, man's opinions, no biblical warrant. Well, from that point, all of the delegates at the Synod proceeded for six months. The theologians continued to meet 
discuss, consider, pray, and debate the Arminian objections, even though the Arminians had left. The Synod concluded with a total rejection of that Arminian view and set forth the Reformed doctrine as scripturally correct on each point. At the conclusion, the Reformed theologians came up with an acronym, the one I mentioned, to be able to easily remember the Reformed doctrines of grace. The acronym is commonly known as TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. You've probably heard of it. Maybe it's been taught right here at SJCC, and you're all very familiar with it. TULIP, T stands for total depravity, U, unconditional elections, L, limited atonement, I, irresistible grace, P, preservation of the saints. These, I would love to talk about all these doctrines today, but I think I'm constrained with time. I'll only have time to talk about total depravity. And with God's help, make an application of this in our marriages. First, you all know that doctrine, that word doctrine, means teaching. That's all it means. It means teaching. Teaching particular principles that are taught and believed to be true. The reason that the Reformed theologians believe these doctrines to be true is based upon the teachings of Scripture, of course. The Scriptures. That's where we go. When we have a question about doctrine, we go to the scriptures. Not man's opinions, not how I feel about it, not the way I would like it to be, not just because the pastor said so from the pulpit. We go to the scriptures. So starting with the first doctrine, total depravity, T, what is meant by these words, total depravity? The doctrine of total depravity came as a response to the Arminian position that man had the moral ability. He had the ability to believe. He had the ability to choose God. He had the ability not to need God's grace. Simply put, the doctrine of total depravity teaches that man does not have that moral ability, but in fact is totally incapable of spiritual goodness. Because of the original sin of Adam and that sinful nature has been imputed into each and every one of us. Every person born into the world, therefore, is enslaved to sin. Apart from the effectual, powerful grace of God, man is a slave to sin. Sin has thoroughly corrupted all parts of man, his heart, his emotions, his will, his mind, his body, all corrupted by sin. We learn that from the very beginning in Psalm 51.5. Remember when David said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Not that my mama was doing something bad when she conceived me, but she's a sinful person. Like we all are. She has a sinful nature. So it was in sin she conceived me. And when I was born, I was also a sinner. 
Let's look at a few other scriptures or a few scriptures to tell us about our own human character. In Mark 7, we learn that man's heart is evil. For from within, out of the heart of man, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adultery, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things proceed from the within, and they defile the man. Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? In Romans 6, we learn that man is a slave to sin with no regard for righteousness. There is none righteous, no, not one. No one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. Oh, and the scriptures go on and on. First Corinthians, natural man, chapter 2. Natural man cannot even understand the things that are spiritual. Ephesians 2. Man is at enmity or hatred with God by nature. First Corinthians 4. Natural man is blind, can't even see the gospel. The gospel is veiled to him. Ephesians 4. Natural man has no understanding. Second Peter 2, he's in bondage to sin. Ephesians 4, he has no conscience because his conscience has been seared by sin. And according to Colossians 1.13, man needs to be delivered by God. He has to be released by God and God's power from the power of darkness. This is a very bad testimony about the spiritual condition of man in his natural state. So we have to ask this question. The fact that God's word describes man so utterly corrupt and lost, completely incapable to the point of not even being able to understand, how is it possible for anyone to be saved? And you know the answer to that. Except by the miraculous work of God and his grace, man cannot be saved. If a sinner is to be saved, it must be wholly the work of God, completely and undeservedly through the work of the Holy Spirit in our souls. It's the work of God who changes our minds and gives us a new heart. Salvation is 100% the work of God. God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And once reconciled to God, once God has given us that faith to believe on Christ, once our minds are renewed, then we begin to love God. And then we begin to love his Savior. It's then that we learn that God is a God of mercy a God who is long-suffering, a God who loves you and who is patient with you, a God of comfort and compassion, and a God who is full of grace. We're brought to tears when we think that God had to send his only begotten son to pay the penalty for our wickedness and our sin by being crucified on the cross like a criminal until he was dead. It took a God of love And mercy, a God who is long-suffering, full of compassion and grace, 
to come and die in the place of an undeserving sinner. So how can this possibly apply to our marriages? The Bible is quite clear in explaining the roles of husbands and wives toward one another. And we all know what they are, don't we? I'm not going to go into an exhaustive teaching on how a wife is supposed to submit and how a husband is supposed to love her. But we know what they are. Wives are told in Ephesians, Submit yourself to your husband, because the husband is the God-appointed head of the wife. Wives are also commanded to be subject to their husbands in everything, as Christ should be subject to. The church is subject to Christ. And to respect and reverence them also. Such submission may not be the accepted custom in our day, Our custom in our day, our culture, does not teach this. But it is nevertheless the command of God. And I suspect that some of you ladies find this command sometimes very difficult to live out. And fellas... Don't think that God's ordinance for your wife to submit to you gives you a license to make unreasonable demands upon your wife. The passage in Ephesians 5.25 goes on to say that you should love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. This implies that you are to love your wife with a self-sacrificing love, giving her not just things, but yourself, your very life for her well-being and her happiness. As Christ loves the church with an undying love, it is our duty as husbands to love our wives unceasingly, regardless of whether or not you get love in return. And again, gentlemen, do you sometimes find it difficult to live that way? For both husbands and wives, grace in marriage must include much love, much patience, much mercy, and much grace upon grace toward one another. It includes being kind when your spouse is not being kind. It includes being patient when your spouse is very ornery. It includes being forgiving when your spouse is unforgivable. It includes being truthful and self-sacrificing. And grace toward Your spouse is not a a once-in-a-while thing. It must be practiced every day. 
or the marriage relationship is going to suffer. Big time. In order for us sinners to have a better handle on this, we must have a proper understanding of how God treated us when we were living in sin, when we were scornful, when we were cursing him, when we were hateful toward him, and how we were so unbecoming in so many ways. As Christians, undeserving as we are, we have been saved by grace. We say those words. We say them. But what does it mean? We were wretched. And God's patience and his kindness and his love and his mercy. He saved us. And even though the blood of Christ has washed our sins away and we're forgiven... Friends, we're still sinners. Remember that. Don't let your mind forget it. We are still sinful people. Before being converted to Christ, every one of us were just like every other lost sinner. We were dead in our trespass and sin, blind and trapped, slaves to sin. And just as totally depraved as the next lost sinner. None of us, not one, deserved the love and the mercy of God. It was by God's undeserved grace that he extended to you and to me, criminals, that were saved. There's nothing in you, nothing in me, that was deserving. We're corrupted through and through. If it was not for God's saving grace, we would still be living in sin. Lost in this world and without hope. Despicable. And this is important to understand. If we do not have a good understanding of God's love and mercy toward us, we will not have the incentive, nor the will, nor even the motivation to be able to apply that very grace toward our spouse, the one we love. As Christians, we have the Spirit of Christ living in us. That's what the scriptures say. Ephesians 1.13 Our hearts have been sealed for the day of redemption. And sin, brethren, is not our master anymore. But in our marriages, day after day, year after year, dealing with the pressures of life and family, our problems with each other sometimes brings the worst out of us. 
And we commit sin, not only against each other, but against God. When everything's going great, it's easy to get along. But when tensions build up, that old nature of sin rears up its ugly head. And if we're not careful, we're heading into trouble. I'd like to take a quick look, briefly, at the fifth chapter of Ephesians. The fifth chapter. Well, the entire fifth chapter of Ephesians is about life in the Spirit. It's about walking in love. It's addressed to all Christians. It's addressed to us. It's addressed to you and me. The first verse sets the theme. The first verse reads, Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. We have been forgiven by God. We have been so much loved. We must be followers and imitators of God. We must walk in love. We must walk in forgiveness to one another. That's what we're being told here. Walk in love as Christ also loved us. We can't go into the entire chapter for the sake of time, but I encourage you to read it. It's very encouraging to me. I suspect it will be to you. When you have the opportunity, read it. Read it together with your spouse. But then we get down to the 21st verse. We discover that the Spirit-filled life is a life of submission to one another. This is the way we live in the church. We submit to one another. And this is the way we live in our various relationships in life. We submit to one another. Verse 21, Ephesians 5.21 says, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Notice that this submission to one another is out of reverence for Christ. That's important to understand. Our mutual submission to each other must be done in the fear of God. Out of reverence for Christ, not fear of man. You're doing this out of reverence for Christ. And this is the way we will live when we're filled with the Spirit of God. Believers show reverence to God by their actions. Believers show reverence to God by submitting to one another. The entire passage here is about submission. First to the church, in that 21st verse, and then we move on to the wife, and then the husband, and then in the next chapter, 6, children to their parents and slaves to their masters. It's not only the wife that has been commanded to submit. It's submission generally to one another in reverence to God. But then we get to the verses that deal with the wife, Ephesians 5, 22 and 23. The command of submission is directed now 
to the wife. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. Here's that same thing now. Showing reverence to God. It says, as unto the Lord. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husband as unto the Lord. That's the way you show your reverence to God is by submitting to your husband. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. This submission is similar to a military term, meaning being under rank. There are certain ranks. In the military, you've got the privates, the corporals, the sergeants, and second lieutenants, first lieutenants, all the way up the ranks. But everything has a rank. There's an order of headship. And this arrangement that we're looking at here has been arranged by God, not man. Don't argue with us. We have responsibilities too. But this is an arrangement by God. And it should not be taken lightly. The scriptural commands wives to submit because husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And then in Ephesians 5.24, it goes on to say, Therefore, as the church is subject, subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. We see a corresponding verse over in 1 Corinthians 11 where we read, But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. There's an order of things. There's a rank. As unto the Lord. Wives, think well of your husbands. Be respectful to them. Obey them in all things that are not illegal or immoral. And do these things as you revere the Lord. Bear with the things that are not so agreeable as Christ bore with you when you were not so agreeable. Live respectfully with your husband, both when things are going well and in times of adversity. And I'm not suggesting that this is easy. It takes a Christian wife in obedience to Christ to live like this. It takes a woman who is walking in love, filled with the Spirit. And then we come to the husbands. So we're not off the hook either. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. As Christ loved the church. Don't you love that? And gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the word, the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such things, that she might be holy and without blemish. 
I don't have this in my notes, but I'm going to give you a personal testimony, if you don't mind. I didn't always understand this. My wife and I had been Christians for years. And I had read this passage of Scripture for years, many times. And I couldn't understand it. On those times, my wife just came flying out of left field and just started berating me up one side and down the other. It probably never happened to you, but it did with me. My wife would just scold me for being such a scoundrel, and I didn't understand why, because I don't think I did anything wrong. At least I didn't know. But this last time, oh, and I would do the manly thing, of course. What does every good husband who is strong, the leader of his house, do? He says, stop acting like a woman, you fool, and then slam the door as I leave. That's what we do. That settled the problem. No, it didn't. Well, the last time this happened, she comes flying out there, and she's giving me fits, and she's telling me this time, I don't love you anymore. My heart is cold toward you. And it just drove a dagger into my heart. And so I left that time with my tail between my legs. I got into my pickup truck, and I went out into the pasture with my Bible, crying. I was out there in the middle of the pasture, nothing around me except me and the Word of God and God. What am I doing, Lord? Help me, help me, help me. Well, make a long story short, somehow I came across this passage as I was praying and crying. And it spoke to me for the first time ever. It said, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I said, oh, ah, it was like an illumination. Ah, I'm not supposed to yell back at her. I'm not supposed to slam the door as I leave. I'm not supposed to tell her she's acting like a woman because that's what she was acting like. I have to die. As a husband, I have to die for my wife. Oh, Lord, thank you. I made a promise to myself. The next time this happened, and I knew it was going to happen again, I was going to die. Well, one day, it did happen again. She was in one of these moods, and she starts yelling at me for something I didn't understand. And I stood there, instead of yelling back like I always did in the past, which she was expecting, I said to myself, silently, die, Dale, die. As Christ died for you, die for your wife. She got all done. I said, honey, I'm so sorry. I want you to know I love you. And then I had to leave and go to work. I felt so much better about that. And it happened again the next time. She come flying out and she was yelling at me and, and I didn't understand it. And I'm thinking, okay, die, Dale, die. As Christ died for you. I was silent. And when it was over, the argument was diffused and I left in peace. The third time it happened... She started berating me 
for something I didn't understand. And this time, I didn't realize I did it, but I said it out loud. I said, die, Dale, die. And she said, what did you say? <laughs> I said, I, I'm just telling myself to die, honey. Oh, I love you so much, honey. I'm just dying to myself because Christ died for me. Christ died for you. Christ died for the both of us. And I'm to love you as Christ loved Christ loved the church and I'm going to sacrifice myself and die for you because I love you and I know I'm not the perfect husband I know I'm doing things wrong but I don't understand what oh really that was a turning point in our marriage it was a turning point I don't think that ever happened again not very often there's going to be times when it's hard to do. It's going to be hard sometimes to extend that same grace to our bride that Christ extended to his bride, us, even when the bride is ornery and doesn't deserve it. This is what has to be done. It was a few years ago at a reformed, we have reformed Baptist family camps every year where families from the various churches in the association get together and there's a, a big place that's got all kinds of, um, it's a great time of fellowship, it's a great time of recreation, a great time of relaxation, and a great time of teaching. And it was at one of these family camps a few years ago that Pastor Ron Baines from the Grace Reformed Baptist Church up in Maine. He has since died, by the way. Bless his heart and bless his family. But he taught a lesson about the doctrines of grace and how it applied to marriage. And that just caught my attention. And I've taken some of those ideas and wrapped them up into this sermon and, and put my own things in there, but the scriptures, and but it's how the doctrines of grace, total depravity especially, apply to our marriages and how God was graceful with us when we were ornery and nasty and yet he extended his love to us. The words that we use to our wives bring out her beauty if we use the right words. We must go all out for our wives exactly what Christ did for us. He went all out for us. He gave it all. A love marked by gentleness and compassion. The Bible tells us that husband and wife are united. Is that right? We are one. We are one in the flesh. Just like we're one with Christ. And since we are one in marriage, if we love our wife as Christ loved the church and loved his bride, we're doing ourselves a great favor. If you want to do yourself a favor, love your wife. That's exactly what is necessary. If our wives did not need to be loved, I'll emphasize that. 
if our wives did not need to be loved, if our wives did not need to be loved, if our wives did not need to be loved. I was paying attention in Sunday school. If our wives did not need our love, gentlemen, God would not tell us, command us to love them. God knows that love is exactly what fulfills her. This is what she needs. She needs her husband's love more than anything else in this world, more than worldly possessions, more than fancy stuff, more than anything. She needs to know and have the security of her husband's love. I know in my case, when I read the scriptures on how God loves me, I feel secure. I feel like I'm, I'm that chick under the hen's wings being protected. How precious is your unfailing love, O God. Give thanks to the God of heaven for his steadfast love endures forever. Oh, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you, says Jesus. I feel secure. I feel safe. If you're a Christian here today and you know that God loves you, you feel good and you feel safe in his love. And our wives need to know and feel safe in our love. So let me recap this segment on total depravity. We'll put the ramp down and we'll start ramping it down by saying every one of us in the room were at one time in a state of hopelessness, totally depraved, completely corrupted by sin and helpless to change our woeful condition. We were rebels against God. We hated the light and we loved darkness. We lived according to the flesh and practiced despicable and heinous acts of sin. We participated in cheap sexual immorality, performing all kinds of impurity and evil thoughts and hated and argued. We were jealous and filled with anger and selfishness. And because of the way we lived, we were all on our way to destruction. We were on the very edge, ready to fall into that black hole and be lost forever, eternally. Death. We were helpless. And what happened? What happened? Why are we still alive? Why haven't we granted, been granted a new birth? Why do we have a new life? Why do we have a living hope? by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a hope that's being guarded and kept for us by faith by God in heaven, awaiting the day of salvation. Why do we have that? Because God is what happened in our lives. God intervened in our lives in a most tender and considerate and merciful way at the very time we deserved punishment. Greater love has no man than this, to lay down one's life for a friend. That's exactly what Christ did for you and for me. He laid down his life. Mercy was extended when it was not deserved. God loved the unlovable. He humbled himself even to the point of death and the cross and he took us as his bride and we are still unlovable except we're loved by God. He's still loving us. He's still being graceful to us. 
And this is what we have to understand as men and women who have been delivered from the power of darkness by the love and the grace of God, transferred into the kingdom of Christ. We are the bride of Christ and out of reverence for God, we must extend mercy to one another in our marriages, even when the other does not deserve it. And we are going to have times of failure. You may have had a a falling out last week, maybe a falling out yesterday. Maybe even on the way to church today. It's going to happen even among the best of us. Yes, we are the saints of God by his grace, but we are also sinners. There'll be times when our spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak, that we'll hurt each other's feelings. We'll say hurtful things. We'll be forgetful. We'll have lapses. We're going to fall short in so many ways. But remember this. When you're facing your difficulties and stress and problems in a time of stress, grace is to the undeserving. You received grace when you did not deserve it. And so... By the power of the Holy Spirit in you, extend it to your spouse. And by the help of the Holy Spirit, we pray that we might be reminded to show that grace in times of need. Let's pray. Oh, Father, may the grace of Christ our Savior and the Father's boundless love and with the Holy Spirit's favor rest upon our marriages, we pray. Remind us on a daily basis to extend grace to one another that we may live with each other in peaceful family union and together possess a sweet communion with the Lord. Joys which cannot be found in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.